your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. It's us two today. We're talking White Sox baseball, as always, every week on Tuesday, thanks to the Blue Wire Network and SoxMachine.com. We've been paired with them since the beginning of the 2022 Major League Baseball season, and it's been great. Go to SoxMachine.com and become a Patreon supporter if you're willing and able Helps us continue to produce the content. You hear Josh Nelson, Jim Margulis all the time working as hard as they do every single day covering the White Sox. And sometimes it can get a little maddening, James. I will say that as we are primarily focused on the minor league side of the operation and as well as following the organization as a whole, front office moves, some of the shifting in draft strategy, philosophy, general manager Rick Hahn trying to uh, delegate resources and an effort to put together a World Series contender under the constraints of what we see from ownership. And it's interesting now, James, that they threw money at the problem, something that we necessarily didn't expect, although kind of figure they needed to do in order to land a player to fill a position of need, and that's an outfielder, an Andrew Benintendi. We'll start there. Before we do, I want to preview what we have on tap on this episode. James Fegan of The Athletic wrote a feature piece on Christian Mena, got sources from all over the organization talking about the player who was signed as a 16-year-old thanks to Marco Patti. Again, Marco Patti, International Scout of the Year of the Chicago White Sox, credited with so much of what we see in the farm system now. And we're going to get into that because Christian Mena, if you listen to the last episode, I believe is going to be somebody that we can count on. Also, James Fox put together a way too early mock draft. Yeah, like right after the draft lottery happened, me and Josh put together like a top 10 hitters and top 10 pitchers thing. But then like everybody else was doing it. So I had the itch to do a mock draft too. So I did one. So it'll be the it'll be the only one for, you know, for a while because, you know, then we'll do our ones in the lead up to the draft, but we have seven months, obviously. So we're going to talk about it because James put together a mock and he has a pick for the White Sox at number 15. Also, Major League Baseball Pipeline dropped a way too early mock. So we'll kind of compare and contrast to see what James's opinion is versus what MLB Pipeline is saying. But James, let's talk about this move. Let's get into it. We'll talk mana in a minute, but I want to go into the Andrew Benatendi decision. Five years, $75 million. The payroll right now is roughly $189 million, about the same as last year. All that considered, what's your initial thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's okay. I think it's like the, I don't know, like it's weird. The discourse is weird because, you know, it's everybody hears that it's the, the largest contract in White Sox history is Andrew Benintendi, right? And like, that's not great. But, you know, I've been saying that they kind of like need to throw money at the problem. And I don't know if Rick Hahn was just like sandbagging everybody, like with all the trade stuff or whatever, because, you know, like he's signed Mike Clevenger now and Andrew Benintendi and all they've used is money, which I think the both of us kind of agreed, like go out and spend money to fill your holes and don't trade prospects. Right. And and look, some trades could still be coming. You know, one good thing Bruce Levine said on 670 to score that, you know, he he had heard that 
you know, they don't need to trade like a Liam Hendricks or somebody else in order to pay for this move. So it just seems like a, you know, it's a, it's an addition. I think it's a good one. I think whether he's the perfect fit or not, I think we can get into and debate. Like I I'm just mostly happy that they spent money. They have a left fielder, you know, I'm sure we'll get into Oscar Colas, who I think is the right fielder. So yeah, I wanted two left-handed hitting outfielders in the corners if they were going to remake this team and they're like on the path to doing so. So I think that's a positive thing. I think you articulated well regarding the decision that needed to be made. They got to spend money at a position of need because what are you trying to acquire in the trade market and what are you willing to give up? Andrew Benintendi, a five-year, $75 million deal, left-handed hitter. Let's talk about the player, the profile itself. What does he bring to the White Sox in the lineup? We know he's left-handed. Adds another lefty bat. This suddenly looks like a left-handed dominant White Sox lineup. If you look one through nine, including Gavin Sheets and Grandall and Moncada and others, we include Colas into that conversation too. I think Andrew Benintendi makes a lot of sense for the construction of this roster just kind of foreseeing what it may turn into. But at this moment in 2023, seems like he's a fit. Yeah, so I mean, I think the ISO under 100 is a problem, but I think like they probably know that too, right? Like if I'm talking about his ISO under 100, like I'm sure the White Sox front office is, you know, there's guys in hitting development that they they hired who have worked with him before. So I will say like, you know, Andy Barquette's a guy that we've had on. He's the Sox minor league hitting coordinator. He was with Benintendi in Boston. You know, Mike Tozar is the field coordinator or whatever that we talked about. He was a hitting coach in Kansas City that has worked with him. So, you know, and Rick Hahn and scouts have loved him. I mean, I reached out, you know, to a source yesterday who basically confirmed to me like they they really wanted Andrew Benintendi in that 2015 draft. And I think the way that was presented was kind of funny. It's like they presented it like they passed on him. Like, no, he went a pick before them. And, you know, they've kind of coveted him since. They talked about him in the Chris Sale trade. So, you know, Andrew Benintendi hasn't been the guy that was advertised out of Arkansas. I think most people thought like maybe more tools, more power. Um, but I mean, nonetheless, like solid player that gets on base a lot. I think we'll take the 370 on base percentage. I think they'd like to increase that home run potential, you know, probably into like that 13, 14, 15 range. And I have no reason to believe that he can't do that playing home games you know, a guaranteed rate field. So it is a solid addition. Um, my only concern is just that like the White Sox need to hit for more power, which is why like I thought a guy like Conforto maybe or somebody along those lines. But I just, I think this is a good move because I think there's certainty here. I think you know what Andrew Benintendi gives you and signing like three war players for this price like is generally a good idea. So you're hoping to solidify an outfield position, not only defensively, but Benintendi could put the ball in play. It's somebody who sits in left field. You know he's going to play fine defense, not the strongest arm, but somebody who we know can play the position, which is great. And he'll turn 29 in July. So keep that in mind. James, you mentioned we're talking about the relationships within the organization now, and I'm curious your opinion on how this may affect the development of Oscar Colas. Is he the starting right fielder at the beginning of the season? Does he break camp? I'm just like curious to see what else they do. So like, I don't expect another big league deal necessarily for like a starting corner guy. Right. 
I mean, if you sign like a, I think I've talked about Tommy Pham or like an Andrew McCutcheon or a guy like that that could really serve as your four. Because I do think they need a righty in the mix. And look, it, they could end up just like not doing much else and going with Victor Reyes. I, I think the problem is like if you get to opening day and it's not Colas and you're starting like Gavin Sheets and Wright or something like a current option, I just like it kind of really depends on what they do next. I think Oscar Colas is going to be given every opportunity to win this job. But I mean, we talk about spring training often and like, you know, I generally think spring training is mostly meaningless. Like they get stuff done, right? But I don't take stats from spring training games and assume that that means you're going to, it's going to translate to April in Chicago in the big leagues. Right. But like, I just like if Colas is in big league spring training and struggles, like would they still bring him North with the club? I just, I don't know. Right. So, but if he hits like in spring training, I'm sure they do. So that's where it's like, it's just kind of a weird situation. I expect him to get the bulk of the opportunity in right field. I don't think there's a reason particularly to hold him back. Like we've talked about Charlotte. I don't think there's much left for him to gain there. I think he would go there and be a monster. And if you think he has bad habits or he doesn't walk enough, potentially, like I don't think going to Charlotte's going to fix those things. So yeah, like I think he's the best option. And then one other like tertiary thing with this, like if you happen to start him in the big leagues this year and he really like, you know, is one of the better rookies in the American league and you happen to win rookie of the year somehow, which is, you know, on the back of the brain, um, the White Sox would get a first round pick for him. So I, I think starting him in the majors makes the most sense if he's your best option out there. I think he's the best option. I think it makes the most sense for him to start the season in right field, largely because of the direction the organization is taking. There's a lot of money committed and there's some coming off the books after 2023. Interesting to see how Lucas Giolito bounces back this year. And I wonder if the White Sox would be willing to entertain what he would command in free agency if he does indeed have a bounce back season and kind of pitches to form. All of these things come into play and you you talk about another edition and it's probably a back end of the roster edition, not something that would break the bank or you know, it may be the White Sox surprise us and trade a significant piece uh, in exchange for value. If that were the case, I figure it would be probably cost-controlled, um, younger, maybe a position player at that point. But who knows? But the point I'm trying to make is the way we should perceive the organization's track back to competitiveness is a reliance on their scouting, their development, and their overall organizational talent, their depth on the 40-man. So that brings me to the second base conversation. Leary's always at the back end of this roster. You mentioned Victor Reyes, who does have enough big league experience to warrant playing time. However, these are below replacement level players. And I'm thinking about the addition of Benintendi. You're adding Colas. We're operating this way. Is Lenin Sosa your guy at second base then? At this point, and do you believe they can get away with Lenin, Romy, Leary at that position? Yeah, I mean, like Lenin Sosa is my guy for sure because I think that's the most upside. But my guess is, like, for them, like, it might be Romy Gonzalez. My preference, honestly, would be just like if you could find a way to get Larry Garcia somewhere else somehow. Because I think Romy Gonzalez is the best fit in that role, right? Like, 
as the bench utility guy type. Now, I don't necessarily like I, I don't think they're going to go out and spend a ton of money on second base. It doesn't mean they can't acquire a guy in a trade, but there are like a lot of, you know, there's there's a couple of. I guess free agents like Gene Segura, I think is interesting. I just think it's probably too expensive, right? Or like if they somehow got Elvis Andrews to come back, like that would be fine too. But I just think like all of the other options, like if you're going to give a Josh Harrison type, like $6 million, like I would rather just have Lenin Sosa play there. Like, I think, I think that's the best idea. Obviously Jose Rodriguez, like we don't know where he's going to start, but I mean with a big first half, like he could factor into this picture too. So I guess like one thing I'm happy about is that they prioritized the outfield because I think there are internal options at second if you have to go that route. But, you know, I am curious to see if they feel the need to add a veteran for that spot. And then if not, do you just like let all these young guys go battle it out and see who wins a job? Like as we've talked about winning jobs in spring training again. So, yeah, I'm not expecting a huge move at second. But, you know, like we've talked about the bullpen, right? Like they could trade a reliever and all of a sudden you have a young second baseman that hits left-handed and we're having another podcast. I just, you know, I think that's the most likely position to go internal. Yeah, I agree. And I wonder what they think of the catcher's spot at this point, if they think it's worth going out and exploring the market. I don't feel good about Carlos Perez, to be quite honest, as a big league catcher. And if Sebi's your main and something happens to Grandall and, and Carlos Perez is your backup. So what do you, I mean, what do you think about roster? Pro- so, you know, I've seen all these suggestions and apparently the White Sox were in the discussions for Sean Murphy, right? And I've seen rumors on Twitter about the Jays catchers and Jansen and guys along those lines. I just kind of feel like, say you acquire a guy, like a starting type guy like that, that you like, and Yaz is healthy. Like, I just like, you know, like, I feel like. It's hard, man. I feel yeah. like Yasmani Grandall. I feel like there's a better chance, there's better odds that Yasmani Grandal bounces back like a little bit and is like fine than there is of like them finding somebody better realistically, right? Now, like, what do you do at backup catcher then? Because Sebi Zavala was good last year. It's a high BABIP. Like, are you confident that Sebi Zavala is good enough, right? And then there's James McCann stuff out there. And I fe- <laughs> I fed into it just because I thought it was humorous on Twitter. Like, I'd be okay. Like, if they got James McCann back for free, you know, and the Mets paid the freight or whatever, like, okay, fine. But then I ask you, like, is James McCann better than Sebi Zavala next year? Like, I don't I don't know that he is. So, right. like, I don't know that catcher is a huge need. It's a huge need going forward for sure, right? But I kind of feel like they're, they might just have to bank on Grandal being better um, because I... I just like don't know what the alternative is. Like you can't really play him at first and DH him because you have Ben Attendee and left now. So like what do you do with Eloy? Um mm-hmm. so it's just not really an option to get a new starting catcher with Grandall on the roster. But I mean, I'd heard pretty consistently from beat writers and people that the White Sox have been in the catching market. So I guess it is like an area to keep an eye on. Yeah, James, that's really good perspective because I feel the same way and I saw the same reports and it got me thinking about what the roster construction would look like if you had another catcher and what it would do to Sebi and Grandall because at this point you're banking on Grandall to produce something. And on a previous episode, I said, don't play him anywhere but catcher because of the bat and the lack of production in the lineup in that regard because you just lose too much if you hit him at DH and you play him at first base, especially considering now like you mentioned with Ben Attendee and his impact, 
Loy, primarily DH. I'm sure we'll see him in the outfield, sprinkled in. Griffel said as much that Aloy is going to continue to work in the outfield, but you know, let's let's anticipate DH for the most part with that player. I, I'm with you, James. I don't think it would do the White Sox any good just to have a roster cluster of catchers at this point. Because yeah, Perez is on your 40 man. Sebi was very good last year, and Grandall is being paid enough to start. So I think that's where we're at. Sebi Zavala also out of options, by the way, too. So, you know, you're talking about a guy who if he's not on your team, you're going to lose him. Now, should anybody lose sleep over that? Like, no. But, I mean, there's a chance that he's a decent player now, I think. I think he came up and he was way better with the bat than people were expecting. I know a lot of people probably didn't watch a ton of White Sox baseball down the stretch, but, like, Sebi was pretty good. I think he had a 120 WRC+, plus, um, and he was like a 2F4 player. I mean, a lot of it was BABIP-induced, where it seems like, you know, maybe some of that will come back down. Um, but I mean, look, it could, catchers develop late. I think what Sebi is like 28 or 29 now, you know, I think offensive minded backup, like he could, he should be mm-hmm. in the big leagues, I think for a while. And it's a guy that we kind of, kind of covered. So yeah, I, you know, I think like their, their catcher in 2024 is probably not in the organization right now. Um, but you know, Yaz uh, kind of puts them in a, in a really weird spot going into the season, Something we've talked about with that thirteen thirteen rule, I just it's something that I've been kind of cognizant of when people mention guys. You know, you, you need optionable players in order to have flexibility, and they don't have a ton of guys that they can just like option up and down consistently. We're gonna take a break before we get to Christian Mena and James Fegan's feature on the right-handed pitching prospect who is uh, bursting on the scene within the organization. So don't go anywhere. If you're a Patreon member, thanks so much. No ads for you. We appreciate you. Otherwise, sit tight. We'll be right back. We have more White Sox baseball on the way. We'll talk Christian Mena and some draft, way too early mock drafts provided by James Fox as well as MLB Pipeline. We'll be right back. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, James, you know how I feel about Christian Mena. It's another opportunity to gloat about a pitcher who we both believe can climb the ranks and maybe burst on the scene as a top 100 prospect. James Fegan put together a feature from The Athletic, talked to a number of different White Sox personnel members, and they provided perspective. So let's get into what we know about the 20-year-old right-handed pitcher and he'll spend his entire season next year as an age 20-year-old who already has three years, two years of experience stateside. I mean, it's already 
been that long as Marco Patti scouted him and signed him as a 16-year-old coming out of the Dominican Republic. So we know about the curveball, James. The last episode we discussed Christian Mena, it was his fastball and size. The fastball jumped in velocity, and he added some weight to his frame. And when we read the article that Fegan provided, something that jumped out to me was the demeanor. Uh, he conducted the interview with James Fegan in in English um, and primarily in English. And I think that says a lot to to me. Uh, Mena is trying to adjust and do what he can to do some of the things that you don't necessarily think about. Right. And, and that just kind of adds perspective to the person's character because it's not easy for somebody uprooting his life at 16 years old, pursuing a passion of his. And so far, all success from the right handed pitcher. Yeah, super interesting guy. I mean, th- this is like, you know, we always talk about when Ben Badler first, like, put us in tune to him. And, you know, we kind of followed him. And, you know, 2020 was weird. And then all of a sudden he's pitching in the complex league with good stuff. And there's scouts there talking about, yeah, like, this guy's interesting. And then all the strikeouts in low A, right? But, you know, we were cognizant of the fact that he wasn't really throwing that hard. He was, you know, just throwing nothing but breaking balls and getting guys out. And there was a little bit of, you know, there were some struggles in double A last year. Um, I don't know about you. I mean, the biggest thing for me is like the, the added weight that he's already put on and like, it sounds like a fastball that's 93 to 95. I mean, if they, you know, they keep adding velocity, it's something that, you know, one of our previous guests, Jack McMullen talked about, like, if you can add velocity for this guy, I mean, yeah, like you're looking at a top 100 pitching prospect. Um, you know, one of the top ones in the White Sox system, he should be in Birmingham this year. And look, man, like you, you kind of alluded to it. He turns 20 in like a week or so, I believe, um, like very soon in December, he's going to pitch the whole year as a 20 year old, like probably at Birmingham. So, you know, I don't expect his major league ETA to be 2023, but 2024 is super realistic. And for a guy that they got for $250,000 out of the Dominican Republic, um, you know, it seems like another win for, for Marco Patti and his staff. Um, this is a, it's a pretty interesting guy. He's interesting enough for James Fegan to write a feature on him in the athletic. So, you know, somebody to, somebody to keep an eye on for sure. I'm sure we'll uh, definitely be continuing to talk about Christian Mena. Quickly, Danny Farquhar is an instructor in the White Sox organization had a quote that I liked. Uh, we, we talk about the curveball, uh, the way that Christian Mena relies on that. It's his best pitch and it's only getting better and it's sharp and it's hard breaking. So he adds a lot of velocity to a 12-6 breaking pitch and Farquhar joked in the article that you know when they discuss certain situations three two count where what are you going to do you're going to try and blow him away with a fastball or you're going to go with the curveball and uh yeah 50 percent of the time we'll throw the curveball Farquhar is like that's nah, probably closer to 90 percent so that's the type of confidence Mena has in that pitch he can throw it when he wants to and he threw it so much it was essentially his primary pitch and we know that cannot be sustainable so to know that he is adding velocity to the fastball as a 20 year old pitching in double a next season will get a better feel of where he's at but as a 19 year old he debuted in double a this year and had a 13 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio although did get hit hard so it tells me and this is against double a players who are about five years older than him so as a 19-year-old playing against 24-year-olds, Mena was able to stand and hold his own. 
That, I think, is an example of some of the value these prospects will get out of the experience in Birmingham. Wes Cath, as an example, super young, somebody who didn't see college play uh, and is going up against professional baseball players who are on the brink of making their major league debuts. So you can understand when you look at the statistics of some of these young players, why they're failing. It makes all the sense in the world. And I think the perspective from the White Sox side of things is that they want to allow these players to experience and fail and understand the level of competition that they're striving to get to. Uh, And as we focus on Christian Mena, this is a player who will hold his own. I'm confident in saying that. Mena himself in the article that James Fegan wrote called it an amazing season. And Fegan said if he has another amazing season, he could break a top 100 list. And I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility whatsoever, considering some of the uh, stuff that we know already. So if you get 110 innings out of Mena double A, oh man, sky point. I- I'm all for it. Yeah. And he just adds to like a group of pitchers in this system that, you know, it's a little bit, it's uh, not even a little bit, like it's a lot better than it was at this time last year. I mean, we've talked about a Sean Burke who's ranked, you know, up in the same range. He's like immediate pitching depth for the White Sox in Charlotte, right? You have recent draft picks like Jonathan Cannon who should, move quickly, I would say. And you got a, you know, Cole Seamus who could who could also move quickly. Matthew Thompson, you know, we've talked about forever, pitched in double A last year. He does well this year. He's close to the big leagues too. There's been improvements from Jared Kelly. So, you know, like I feel like pitching as an organizational like mandate and philosophy, they've made some changes. They've added to this system and this program. And we saw Davis Martin last year. I wouldn't be surprised if there's another Davis Martin this year that we're not talking about yet. So, you know, this is definitely a good thing. Christian Mena is very exciting. You know, it, it, it actually like thinking of Christian Mena makes me excited about Luis Reyes. He's, you know, their top signing in the upcoming international class. We'll have info on him at future socks coming up, but you know, like they're signing the best pitcher in the, in the, from the Dominican, Christian Mena was not that. So they've had a pretty good track record with pitchers at low dollar amounts. So signing some for a little bit more money could be even more promising than him. James, you cover the international draft unlike anybody else. And over at SoxMachine.com, I would say that we cover the Major League Baseball draft not better, but probably among the best. Like, I don't want to discredit those who do it for a living like prospects live we have a lot of respect for 2080 baseball and baseball america but i want to say that over the last two years working with you and now with josh and jim nobody's more dedicated covering the draft than than us at future socks so we may be on the same plane as those other guys not better because i want to give them credit as well but considering that we're on that same plane it says a lot about the work and the process that goes into covering this stuff And James, you and Josh already, we talked about it early in the podcast, some of the best college hitters and pitchers and and prospects coming into the upcoming 2023 draft. Never too early to talk about the draft, but we're doing that in December, coming up on the new year. We see a mock draft drop by MLB Pipeline, but you dropped it first a few days prior. So let's talk about your mock draft. And um, I'm, I'm seeing the top three. And we'll compare and contrast the top three picks of MLB Pipeline and yourself, James, your your own list. But I was curious to see that Max Clark goes two, Dolander falls to four, and scrolling all the way down to the White Sox pick, you have him taking a left-handed pitcher. So we'll get to that. But 
considering the top three here, James, Max Clark, I'm I'm with you. I mean, he's he's been a sensation. I think he's um somebody who was expected to be a top pick for years as he entered the high school scene. But Dylan Cruz, Max Clark, Jacob Gonzalez, that's your top three. Can you explain? Yeah, so I mean I think I went Dylan Cruz. Like I, I feel like he's gonna be the consensus, like until the season starts, right? And then you know, then you start nitpicking consensus guys, but I mean, he's pretty much as good as it gets for a college guy that might be able to play center with, you know, plus hit and plus power. That's what a number one pick looks like. I mean, look, there's always the chance that the pirates try to save money and go with somebody else and, and go throughout. But I mean, those are, those are conversations for later days. So Dylan Cruz is probably the best college player in the class. There's also Chase Dolander, right-handed pitcher from Tennessee who people consider you know, kind of like a true ace. I mean, MLB Pipeline said he might be the best college pitching prospect since Garrett Cole. So Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg in that tier. And then there's a couple of high schoolers, Max Clark uh, from from in, right outside of Indianapolis, as well as Walker Jenkins, um, an outfielder from North Carolina. Those are your, you know, your high upside prep guys. But I will say, I think it's going to be really college heavy near the top. College bats always rise when they're in these drafts and the 2020 draft being five rounds, a lot of guys went to school. So this is like a really loaded class, partly because of that. So, you know, we nobody really knows the order. We're all guessing, but you know, there's Wyatt Lankford out of Florida and there's a whole bunch of shortstops. So yeah, it should be interesting. And the Sox are picking right at 15, which, you know, I think is a little lower than people anticipated, but miss the playoffs and uh, get the 15th draft pick and a little bit more bonus pull money to use. And you said they would select Thomas White, left-handed pitcher, Phillips Academy. He's got a 96-mile-an-hour fastball, 6'5". I saw a quick video on him, and this is like a super early projecting. We are going to get more information uh, once the summer rolls around. But just looking at the video that I saw, give me that. And I I like the way you think because – when I watched the video of Thomas White working just his repertoire in warmups, I'm like, huh, kind of style profile that we're starting to see Mike Shirley fall in love with and Ethan Katz turn into some value. And we see Noah Schultz get picked last year with a similar type of uh, extension delivery frame. Is that where your thought process was in, in putting White at 15? Yeah, I just kind of thought like that's a, that's a Mike Shirley type, right? And I just... You know, they've they've taken a high school pitcher, you know, in like in the last five drafts, I think not in the first round, but just like mm-hmm. in general. Right. Like they, they've clearly shown that they are not afraid to take high school pitchers. Now, would they take a high school righty there? I don't I don't really think so. I think it would be a lefty. But the other thing I kind of wrote, like in the story was just that, like the White Sox right now are they're They're a complete wild card. Like Mike Shirley could do anything. Like in his first draft, he went Garrett Crochet. Then you go Colson Montgomery with the prep hitter. And this year they went with a prep pitcher, right? So we could make the joke that they're taking one of these college bats this time. And they could. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of guys who they've been linked to in the past that are in this draft. Like they could go with a college hitter at 15. They could do anything. You know, one good thing about picking 15 is like a little bit over 4 million probably. Like if somebody falls to you, like you could decide to just like take a guy who fell down the board that's better than you kind of thought and pay him. So, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. They're picking a little bit higher than they have lately. 
So, you know, I think MLB Pipeline had him with Will Sanders. If they went the college pitching route, nobody should be surprised. They've been trying to load up on arms lately. So, yeah, I, I think one of the interesting storylines for the White Sox leading up to this thing seven months from now will just be right. will just be the true wild card that they could be. We're going to be talking about, like, all four demographics, I feel like, because we're just we're really not going to know. Pipeline had a pitcher. You chose a pitcher to the White Sox. I love pitching. Give me that. Mention the five. Uh, prep arms, Dahlquist, Thompson, Tanner McDougal, by the way, who's throwing Jared Kelly and the latest Noah Schultz. Great to see Tanner McDougal throw. That's somebody that I'm excited to watch develop because uh, still young, and you always reference this, James, you draft prep talent, they get hurt early, and you're still young when they're ready to come back and compete. Um, it's it's kind of a twisted way to look at things, but comparatively, if Tanner McDougal was coming out of college and suffered the uh, Tommy John, then it's a little different trajectory in a career path. But it's so good, James, quickly before we uh, wrap up this thing, Tanner McDougal getting set to work in 2023. Yeah, and I'm curious to see like the innings limit. I would imagine he's in Kannapolis. One thing I'm looking forward to in a future podcast, maybe in a couple of weeks, is just going through these minor league rotations for the White Sox because I think it's a lot better than it was. I mean, I do think they're going to have to sign some veteran depth for Charlotte, you know, just because that's the way it kind of goes. But the rotations at the other three affiliates, I mean, there, there's a lot of pitching prospects in this system. And, you know, there's some high school arms that that should pitch in Kannapolis for the first time, like without rookie ball starting right away. So, you know, it's, it's just interesting. And then some guys that we followed in the past. So that's something for future weeks that, you know, there, there's a lot more pitching in this system than there was like this time a year ago. That's James Fox. Follow him on Twitter at JamesFox917. I'm at Rankin906. We have a special guest for you next week. It's a little holiday gift. If you celebrate the holiday, Merry Christmas to you and Happy Hanukkah, Happy Chinooka. But good thing that you're with us because Bill Mitchell of Baseball America was up close and personal in Arizona with a lot of the players that you want to know about, including Noah Schultz. So we're going to talk to Bill Mitchell next week. Thanks, as always, for being a part of our family at Future Socks. Go to SoxMachine.com, read all that we have to offer, and if you're willing to become a Patreon member, we thank you. So have a happy holiday season. We're going to talk to you next week. Thanks to James Fox for all that he does for us at SoxMachine.com and FutureSox.com. My name is Mike Rankin. We'll talk to you all next time.